Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a really, really interesting episode. I am very proud of this one. We are talking to singer, singer Johnny Edwards. So Johnny, as you may or may not know, was the man who was selected to take over for Lou Graham as the lead singer of Foreigner in the early 90s. Imagine what a tough gig that must have been at that time. Uh, unfortunately, the one album he did with them, as you know, Unusual Heat, didn't do very well. This was the first single off of it, Low Down and Dirty. It sounds great, but by then bands like Foreigner were well past their sell-by date. He, he couldn't win taking over for Lou. Grunge was happening. You learn so much in here about the personalities involved in Foreigner. Mick Jones, Lou, what Johnny was told versus what would actually happen. He really could not win, but he did the best he could. Now, this taking over as a lead singer in a big, prominent rock band was actually a little bit of a theme in Johnny's career. He took over briefly as the lead singer in Montrose. We learn all about Ronnie in there. He takes over briefly as the lead singer in King Cobra. That story is fascinating. Wait till you hear it with Carmine. Is it Carmine? I always forget if he's Apice and Vinny is a piece or is it the other way around? I think it's Carmine Apice and Vinny Apice. Anyway, I never remember which one it is. But anyway, that story is fascinating too. And along the way, there are a lot of other bands that Johnny is starting and working in that he thinks are going to take off. Like Royal Jelly... Northrop, Buster Brown, and unfortunately, none of them quite do. And uh, eventually, he kind of just gives up on music, understandably. The guy gave it his all for years, and it never quite worked, and frankly, he got screwed a lot, and uh, eventually just went back to normal. So now he works as like a normal guy. In fact, he works in IT, just like me, software. And uh, But he does have a blues band, that he play that he plays in with a bunch of his buddies called Blue Funk, and that those words are spelled crazily: B L E U P H O N Q U E. Look for it in the uh, description of the show here. It's uh, you'll figure it out, and I'll put a link to it in the description here too, so you can tap and go right to it. They're a great blues rock band. Anyway. Johnny has a story that's unlike anyone else's. I really think you're going to enjoy this one. This is the kind of story that needs to be told. People like Johnny, his experiences, that's the kind of stuff we want to know more about. So I was really grateful that he talked to me. He called me from his home in Louisville, Kentucky. So Johnny, I mean, look, you've done a lot of th- you've done a lot of things in your career. There are a lot of yeah. things that we're going to talk about, but I mean, Foreigner is the top story, uh, for better or worse. So let's just get the big one out of the way. You know, let's. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, I've been listening to Blue Funk. I've been listening to Royal Jelly. I've been listening to okay. King Cobra. All the other things, and we're and I want to touch on all of these things. But let's just get the mother of it all out of the way. So, tell uh, us how you even entered the Foreigner orbit. How did this happen? Well, I was one of those guys that played in bar bands forever, and we wrote our own songs and put our own albums out and shopped demo tapes around relentlessly for years and years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we had some interest from Atlantic Records at one point, and um, that was with a band called Northrop. 
so they had a lot of material that we'd submitted to Atlantic Records, and they had a, we had a guy there that was interested in signing that band, but it didn't really reach fruition. And okay. Where so, were you based? Uh, Sorry, from, where were you based at the time? Well, yeah, originally I was based around Louisville, Kentucky. That's where okay. I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I had a bar band around there for years called Buster Brown. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played, you know, the Chitlin Circuit. We made it, you know, all around uh, mm-hmm. Eastern United States. We did a bunch of gigs with Ronnie Montrose. We had a big PA and lights, you know, so we would mm-hmm. we would uh, work with club owners to provide production, and then we mm-hmm. would open the open the show and do our stuff, and then Ronnie's band would play and. And uh, then we pack it all up and go on to the next place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we got to know Ronnie through that. He produced a demo tape for us. And then mm. he asked uh, the drummer, James Kotak, and myself if we would come out to... Uh, he lived up in the Bay Area in Walnut Grove. Walnut Creek, I'm sorry. Walnut Creek. And yeah. uh, we recorded an album with him for Enigma Records. Yeah, mean. Yeah, the mean that's album. Kind of, yeah, uh-huh. it's kind of obscure. I mean, I don't own it. I was trying to. It's not on any streaming services, and not even all the songs are on YouTube. But I was trying to go through and like really absorb mean. That had to have uh-huh. been. I mean, just to take a sidestep from the foreigner story for a second, you're singing with Montrose. I mean, Sammy Hagar is <laughs> not there anymore. You have to feel like this is your first big break, right? It was, yeah. So Ronnie will always be my hero for yeah given me you know that that first opportunity so yeah but we we spent you know the whole thing you know start to finish was a two-week experience (laughs) you know the songs were already yeah the songs were already done you know ronnie produced everything in a studio with an engineer and we just rehearsed a little bit and went there and slammed it out Mm -hmm. and uh so that you know there wasn't a whole lot to it but um I did make some friends in the process, and that's how the Northrop band came about. Uh, uh, that was based around Sacramento, and okay. so I decided to move out there and join oh. that band. I Jeff used to live in Northrop. Sacramento. Okay. Yeah. Cool yeah. town. Yeah. We were actually up in Auburn, uh, oh. based more out of Auburn and actually Forest Hill, which is even further up in, yeah. in okay. High Sierra. So, anyway... Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I moved out there, my wife and I, and uh, we struggled with that for about three years. 
and that was the band that sent all the tapes around everywhere. And uh, we got interest from Atlantic and others, but we never did get signed. And I finally got frustrated with it and moved to L.A. and mm -hmm. started a band with James, who was the drummer from mm -hmm. Buster Brown. He'd also moved mm -hmm. out there. And I don't know if you know his history. He had yeah, a band Scorpions. called King Kingdom Come, and then uh, yeah. he went on to the Scorpions after that. But after Kingdom Come, he and I got back together and we wrote a bunch of songs together and we got a contract with Atlantic Records and uh, we were all set to record and uh, Foreigner started looking for a singer because mm -hmm. Lou Graham wanted to pursue a solo career. Mm. And so there were a lot of tapes of me floating around at Atlantic. So Mick's brother, Kevin, Jones was the guy in charge of trying to find singers and so they heard hmm. heard my stuff and thought it was a good fit so they asked me to to join that and I I wasn't interested I was really excited about my own thing that uh, hmm. we we just had signed to Atlantic <laughs> and before we signed they were sending me <laughs> calling me up saying hey don't sign anything don't mm -hmm. sign anything and i'm like yeah whatever whatever mm -hmm. whatever so we, we went ahead and signed the contract with atlantic and then mick came out there on a private jet with jan oh. winter and all this oh, stuff and really really started turning up the <laughs> turning up the heat yeah 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 and he, he called me from he was up in west hollywood and he called me and he said johnny you know i know I know we talked a little bit. I know you're not interested. Why don't you just come down here and just have a cup of coffee? And we'll talk a little bit. I said, okay. No harm in, in talking. So I went down there and met with him, and we chatted a while and kind of hit it off. And then he said, look, man, just I'm here. We're going to head out tonight. Why don't you just come with us back to yeah. New York and spend a few days, and we'll see if things feel you know right mm -hmm. or you know, you don't have to commit to anything. Just so he talked me into it. Really? I went out there. Yeah. And uh, because, you know, I, I thought at the time Foreigner had passed their prime, and I, I yeah. was right about that. Yep. They had. And, and um, so I didn't see them really on the, on the upswing. It was mm -hmm. more the opposite. And I mm -hmm. thought, you know, odds are against any new band. I know that. But mm -hmm. at least, you know, I was able to fulfill, you know, a, a, a long-standing dream of my own to sure. have my own band and give, give it a shot. Yeah. And uh, that's why, and these were good friends of mine that I played with for years. And and so, I was, and our music was current, you know, the uh -huh. stuff that I did with Northrop and with King Cobra was more, you know, just straight 80s hairband rock and it... Mm -hmm. I wasn't that satisfied with it either.
by that time, you know, the Seattle sound was happening. And, I, you know, I'm more of a rootsy guy. Yeah. I grew up in the Southeast, and I, I, I like that kind of music. That's the kind of music I played when I was younger. Huh. And that's the kind of thing that we had. It was more like a Black Crows kind of. Yeah, there you go. Kind of uh, category. If yeah. You want to put it in a bag. Everything has to be in a bag, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, right. uh, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. so let me, I have so many questions. First of all, let me, let me ask you this. One of the things that seems to come up a lot is that Lou wanted to leave Foreigner because he felt like there were too many ballads. We were, you know, Mick, they had success with I Want to Know What Love Is and Mick hears dollar signs or sees dollar signs and thinks, let's keep doing some more of this. And Lou is like, uh-huh. I just want to rock. I, I don't, I don't care if there's a ballad or two on an album, but let's not focus on that. And that's one of the reasons why he wants to leave. That's what I've always heard. And yeah. what I find interesting about that is that there's almost no ballads on Unusual Heat. That album, <laughs> I mean, maybe it wasn't the right album at the time, but that album rocks. I mean, in retrospect, oh, yeah. a really good, solid rock album of the time. And I'm thinking, it well, is. Yeah. did Mick, I mean, first of all, do you, I mean, you were in the inner circle there for a little while. Is anything I'm saying that are rumors, is any of that true? It is true. You know, these things happen for more than one reason. Yeah. So that is certainly one of the reasons hmm. why Lou wanted to pursue his own solo career. But Mick started that band with Bud Prager. You know who Bud is? Mm, I've heard the name. He he's he was a manager, and oh. he and Mick joined forces when Mick you know moved to Manhattan from England, mm-hmm. and he hooked up with Bud, and Mick wrote most of those songs. I mean, he had most of that material done, mm-hmm. and they started looking for singers, and they found Lou. You know, he was mm-hmm. singing in a band called Black Sheep, and so. Mick always took the posture of this is my band <laughs> and I claim most of the songwriting and I don't think he gave Lou the amount of credit that mm-hmm. I think Lou was due. I think a huge part of their success was because of his singing ability. Absolutely. The song, the songs are great. Yes, yeah. they're great. And at the time you couldn't beat it. And it's still, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. still great. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you want to listen to classic rock, it's right in there. And yeah. And so, you know, when it came to songwriting, you know, they would write all the songs, and then Lou would make them all come alive. Mm-hmm. And and then all of a sudden, well, here we are. It's you know, time to divide up the songwriting percentages. And all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. You know, Lou. He's going to get ten percent, and Mick gets ninety. It's that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and, that makes uh, sense. Right, and yeah. and uh, so there was there was some certainly an element. You know, mm-hmm. Mick used to tell exactly. me stories about how Lou would be like. They'd be trying to get him to sing, you know, the ballads and stuff, mm-hmm. and they would be like, "Hey, uh, I ain't no crooner, man. Don't be trying to make me into a crooner." <laughs> And so there is truth to that. You know, I heard that, but I also know more of the inside when it comes to songwriting credit and all that and have some of the resentment built up that way. It was mixed band, and that's all there was to it, and he made it seem like 
whatever. Yeah, yeah. My way or the highway. Ever, I, that makes total sense. Did you ever talk to Lou uh, during I've that never year? met him. You've never met him? Never met him. Okay. Mm -mm. Never okay. spoke to him, never met him. Okay. So when Mick comes to you and he's, you know, basically trying to recruit you, you know, sell himself. First of all, I, I, I can't get over the fact that he was in a plane with Jan Wenner because Foreigner cannot get any love in Rolling Stone magazine. And they were in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they gave, and Jan's the godfather yeah. of all of that, you know? Yeah, uh, they gave us three and a half stars. They did. They did. heat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, that was nice you know, is better than three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not as bad as one. Yeah, I mean better than one. You know. Yeah. So I just uh, uh, they I, were I, good friends. That is crazy to me. You would think then that Foreigner would get more respect from the rock intelligentsia if he was that good, since Jan seems to sort of set the pace with that stuff. Anyway, I'll get past it. Believe, I, it, but I cannot yeah. get. Pa I cannot believe that. Anyway, when Mick is pitching himself to you and you're coming along sort of grudgingly is there ever a talk about whether they should change the name like we know no going in, no at no point because i mean you know how it is i mean if people are what few what, this sounds bad what few foreigner fr fans are still around at that time and that's not a knock on them that's a knock on it happened to every band of their ilk um, you know, I, would they have been more into a band that had a different name, kind of like Van Hagar versus Van Halen, sort of a thing? Mm -hmm. No, no, that didn't come up. I think okay. Mick Mick had a lot of illusions, I would call it, about you mm -hmm. know where the band fit in at, at that point in time, mm -hmm. and he thought just the name Foreigner was going to force mm -hmm. that album that we made you know mm -hmm. up to a pretty good opening in the charts of course that the the month that that album came out is when SoundScan was implemented in, mm -hmm. in billboard magazine and so everything all of a sudden mm -hmm. was based on actual sales right not how much <laughs> arm twisting uh, yeah. you know, management and record companies could do to get songs placed high in the charts right off yeah. the bat so uh, he, he just felt like other bands had replaced their lead singers and, mm -hmm. and moved along just fine. ACDC did it. Mm -hmm. uh, Chicago True. had done it. Uh, point. Others. Yeah. And uh, so he thought we could do it too. And we kind of did. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know that inside information sold about, well, Leading up to that, they had what ages they had. Uh, four hundred four was their biggest, and it, mm -hmm. it probably sold, uh, you know, five million yeah. at that point. And then uh, Agent Provocateur came along, and it sold maybe a million five. And then Inside Information came out, and it sold a little over a million. Mm -hmm. And then this one came out, so there was already a trajectory there. Sure. We sold about half. We didn't go gold. We sold probably 400, 450,000 okay. albums in the U.S. So I don't okay. know that it would have done any better. Yeah, you good know? point. No, what I mean? I, yeah, and, you're right. And, and uh, so I look at it that way. I, I saw that coming, and I was kind of disappointed that they didn't. But it's not, okay. not that big a deal, really. Okay. I mean, no. I, it was what I expected, and I thought we did a good job. And 
That's interesting. And, uh, I had what? a great experience. Got to go around the world a couple of times. And yeah. So I want to ask you about stuff. the touring, but one other thing I have is I'm, I'm curious about what kind of expectations. It sounds like you went into this very soberly, very clear-minded, realizing what is likely or could possibly happen. And you might have been mm -hmm. the only one in that room thinking that way. So were people like Mick being like, no, trust me, Johnny, this is going to be great. You know, this is going to be huge and we're going to carry on for years and you're our new Lou. We don't even need Lou anymore. Are expectations like that being spoken or presented to you? Or is it like, hey, we'll try this and see what happens. Who knows how long it'll last? Uh, no, he, he tried to he tried to project uh, a high degree of commitment. Hmm. Okay. I'll put it that way. Okay. He tried to project that, and he, he knew that it would probably not work well for him to project mm -hmm. the opposite of that. True, true. So he seemed like he was committed to it, and uh, so we wrote all the songs together, and Good. it was an okay. honest effort. I learned a lot doing that, and Terry Thomas, the producer, yeah. co-wrote along with it, and... Uh, He's he's amazing. Yeah. Um, so. Okay. No, it was a it was a good honest effort all the way around. It was just that when the thing finally did come out and it didn't get that initial thrust that mm -hmm. Mick had hoped, and Atlantic Records also viewed it, I think the same way I did. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's just not so much appetite at that point in 1991 yeah. to break you know more new songs on AOR radio yeah they were yeah. already playing they were already in this mode that they're still in today of mm -hmm. playing a certain number of songs mm -hmm. you know about a hundred songs that they yeah. still play to this day yeah. and it had already taken hold and it wasn't a place where you could break a new band or or put new music out there Mm -hmm. and get it get it widely widely played yeah do you know so, if you hadn't gotten the job do you know who plan b would have been is it someone we know uh yeah yeah kelly hansen was also really? in the running okay i wondered that about that yeah they talked to him too and mark free i don't know if you know who mark free yeah is. marcy free yes yeah, he, he was, God, what a great singer he was. Yeah, I didn't um, mean to get him, her, on here. I love right, him. Right, yeah. right. So the three of us were the ones that I had heard made okay. it to the final round. I don't know how deep the negotiations were with the other two, but okay. um, it seemed like... okay. I guess I played hard to get it. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, it went that way. And I know okay. that when we uh, talked to some of Mick's friends, he played a lot of these tapes for other people. And mm -hmm. I remember talking to Billy Joel about it. And he's like, mm. Johnny, you know, I, I picked you, man. Mick played me the other guy. <laughs> and then he said, you know, I think you should hire John. Billy Joel said that about you? Uh-huh. Yeah, nice. he's another good friend of Mick. You know, he knows Mick <laughs> that makes sense. takes a lot of pride in all his celebrity friends. He I knows a lot it. of cats. And I believe it. 
Yeah. I believe it. So let me ask you this. When, when Lou finally did leave and they accepted, you know, Kelly completely, was there ever any talk about bringing you back? Or was it like, we just want to kind of, no offense to you, Johnny, bury that chapter and move on completely? I think that's pretty much it. I mean, the, the, uh, the separation was pretty painful. I mean, I, I, I try not to dwell on it. Sure. I thought it was unprofessional, Ooh, put it that really? way. Ooh. Yeah, because Nick and I were working together every day mm -hmm. in L.A. and uh, working on songs and getting them together and, you know, Ahmed Erdogan's coming out to listen to stuff and we're meeting with him and he's talking about how well we work together mm -hmm. and we had about eight songs finished and we only needed to write a few more and we had some other writers working with us and it's every day getting in there and hashing it out and I was engineering this stuff you know I'm pretty good with a you know home studio mm -hmm. and uh, so we were we were definitely on a on a track to do another record mm -hmm. and so I came in one day I'd been with the band for two years and I came in one day and said hey man I'm, I'm looking at buying a house and he said oh okay so that process takes a few months, as mm -hmm. you probably know. Yeah. And I'm uh, talking about it every day. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I, I finally did make this purchase. So uh. they came to move. And I said, man, I'm not going to be able to uh, to be here tomorrow because we're moving. And uh, just let me know when we're ready to yeah. get back together, whatever. And so I moved. And didn't hear anything for a couple of days and then a week went by and I had a single phone call and then he called me up one week later and said hey Johnny uh, we decided you know to bring Lou back in the band oh. I was like oh that's pretty no. neat <laughs> oh you couldn't have told me this sooner that's like right. the worst nightmare oh no it's pretty bad it's pretty bad and uh, you know I, I couldn't afford this house yeah. And so there I am, you know, with my wife and a young child trying to figure out now what are we going to do? And so I had no resume, no, oh, no, uh, you know, work history. I've been a musician yes. all my life. I can, I'm a resourceful guy. I can do a lot of things, but mm -hmm. how do you jump into a, you know, $80,000, $100,000 a year job with yeah. no, uh, so, but, oh, now, Royal uh, yeah. Jelly, I think, comes out of the ashes of this. And I, I'll ask you more about that later, but I got to know what mm -hmm. happened with the house. Did you stick it out for a while? Did you immediately sell it? What yeah. did you do? No, we we hung in there. We put it on the market, but this is at a time in L.A. when we thought the market had bottomed out, and that's mm -hmm. why I wanted to buy, because mm -hmm. the late 80s uh, you know, was a, a big correction in the market. So I thought I was buying at the bottom, but I wasn't. And mm. after we got in there, the value contend continued to go down. Oh, no. And so we weren't able to sell it for anything near what we needed to get out <sighs> of it. 
So we just had to suffer through it. My wife went out and got a job right away, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I had some money saved up. Yeah. And and so you know, I started working as a bartender. Did and, you really? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I worked at the Red Onion, and uh, I like you know, I like to work, man. I, I like to do mm-hmm. a lot of different things, and mm-hmm. I don't have any regrets about working hard to, yeah. to make a living for my family. I think all honest work is honorable. I Absolutely. I, I do, too, but, and uh, I talk to so many people who are in sort of, I mean, that's sort of the focus of the podcast, honestly, or like the the ups and downs. I just, um, it can't have been, I mean, it's honest work. I mean, more people have that job than they have front man for a big rock group, you know? So there's oh, nothing yeah. wrong with it. It's just that it can't have been easy on your psyche to have just been singing in front of thousands of people and now you're <laughs> bartending, you know, months later. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's an adjustment, but... yeah. I've got a good foundation. I, you know, I can handle things. I wanted to continue on. I wasn't finished. And I felt like I, what I wanted to do kind of got interrupted mm-hmm. with all this foreigner distraction. And so I got some friends together and started that Royal Jelly thing. And yeah. Sheesh. Everybody wanted to sign that. We had offers all over the place right away. So good. And, what uh, happened there? Yeah. Well, we signed with Island Records, and uh, they gave us a decent shot, uh-huh. and it just didn't catch fire. They didn't. It was a. It was another one of those projects that I knew there was no point in trying to put out a, a another you know AOR mm-hmm. album and try to go to AOR radio and break a new band. That just mm-hmm. was not happening. So I wanted to try to do something that would strike a different nerve. And so, but Island didn't know how to promote it. Mm-hmm. I think they did the best they could. They went ahead and tried to promote it on AOR radio. And we did get some airplay. Okay. We Which did song, tour, by the way? You know, we I don't even a, know. What was the single off that album? Uh, we, we liked this song called Ceiling. And we asked yeah. them to put that out first. And they did. bit of airplay but there was a song on there called generator mm-hmm. that is the song that got us signed mm. hey gang let me break in here for a minute take care of a little bit of business and i want to give you more time to listen to generator by royal jelly because this album this song is great 
Um, we got a new uh, iTunes review. Thank you. And it's a weird one. Well, weird. It's from a listener that Feck99, I'm pretty sure that's our buddy, Andy Solemn. I would have assumed he did this a long time ago, but I guess he didn't. I feel like I know the guy, but he finally wrote us a review. Thank you, Andy. This is uh, a music podcast must listen. Five stars. Been listening to this wonderful podcast for some time, and John continues to bring on interesting guests, many we all remember fondly. What makes The Hustle stand out from the many other music podcasts is the angle he takes and the questions he asks. I also enjoy John's obvious enthusiasm. As a music nut and fanboy myself, John presents as one of us and goes places that we too, as fans, would like to go. I also enjoy how he inter intersperses songs into the interview, which adds context to the conversations. Highly recommended. Thank you, Andy, for saying all of that. And as you know, you guys love it. You guys know that I love it when I get, when you guys call out something that Yan works so hard on. So talking about the songs being interspersed, that's exactly why we do it. Context is the word. And Yan works really hard on that. So I'm really grateful that you called him out on that. Thank you so much, Andy. We also got a new recommendation on uh, the Facebook page. This one's from Brian Northrup. It just says, The Ultimate. The Chris Butler episode seemed to ask every question I've ever had about the waitresses. Very entertaining. Yeah, Chris Butler, that was one of our best episodes of the year, if you ask me. That, that Speaking of stories that like nobody else has, imagine everything that has happened in Chris Butler's life. There's the shootings at Kent State. There's his house. There, he lives in Jeffrey Dahmer's old house. There's making a living off of the obscure Christmas rapping song by the waitresses. All that crazy stuff uh, in one man's life. It is nuts. All right, we got another. This one's an older uh, recommendation from Alan Dunst on Facebook. John acts on behalf of the everyman who fantasizes about having a conversation with the favorite musician of their youth yet brings some serious research to the table, making his questions a lot better than any fanboys. A good journalist... Oh, thank you. That means a lot. John's not afraid to go in for the difficult question, but he does so with immense respect for his subject, who typically recognizes that the question is not merely gratuitous, but is inviting true recollection and insight. That is huge. Thank you, Alan, for saying that. I've mentioned this before. I got my degree in college in journalism. I had set out to be, you know, a reporter or a journalist or something like that. I wanted to tell those kinds of stories, specifically music-related stories. <laughs> and, uh, but so the two things that I like, you know, bet went all in on in my career was I wanted to work for the newspapers or I wanted to work in music. And neither of those industries exist anymore. And if they do, you can barely make a living. So I completely blew it on that front. And I've had to sort of make it up ever since. So when people say nice things about my journalism skills, which I, you know, I use to some degree on here, I really, really appreciate that. It means a lot because that's what I wanted to do originally. Uh, let's read another. This is a couple short ones. Hamilton Diaz, best podcast about music. My gosh. Thank you, Hamilton. <laughs> I, I aspire for that to be true. I know Yan and I wish that were so. Um, you saying that means a lot. I hope that that is true, or I hope that we're at least close. 
And then another one of our good listeners, Greg Blanchard. He also recommends us on Facebook. Candid conversations that are fully invested in a love for music and curiosity about how that biz works. Or sometimes doesn't. Generally long episodes, worth the time. I really, really appreciate that, Greg. uh, And I appreciate your commentary and all the feedback you give, as I do all of you. Thank you for anyone who gets involved on our Facebook page or in Twitter or whatever. As I've said before, I don't go too far on Twitter. I, I don't, I don't really feel like that's where we interact at our best. But um, Facebook's kind of the hub, for better or worse. And ever since I started introducing these uh, music polls, our activity has gone way up, and I, I appreciate it. That's that was the whole point of doing it. So um, if you're not following us on Facebook, uh, maybe you're missing out because we have kind of a daily thing going on over there. I always post a daily poll where I pit two uh, bands or artists together and see what you like. Let me, I will tell you one thing about that. Um, I just, they're meant to have fun, guys. Sometimes, most of the time I put people together that are related in some way. In fact, like today I put Richard Marks versus the Tubes. And I did that because Richard and Fee are like best friends. And so I thought if you know that, then you understand why I pit these two together. Uh, the other day I put Kylie Minogue and Kim Wilde together. I figured they're both, Kylie's not British, but they are sort of Kim for the eighties and Kylie for the nineties and two thousands are sort of, you know, the big overseas British Chanteuses of their era. But some people were like, well, I think you should have matched up Kylie and Madonna, or I don't think that's a really good comparison. Don't worry about all that. Just have fun. Just have fun with it. I, I just, sometimes they make sense to me and I'm trying not to use people more than once. So, um, it, you know, I already used Madonna, Madonna and Cindy Lauper made more sense to me. So don't overthink it too much. Just have fun. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't really love the criticism cause it's just meant to be a good time. And I usually have my reasons for doing it anyway. I hope you guys just don't come along for the ride. It's just meant to be fun. Anyway. Um, I think that is pretty much it. Um, you know, as no, oh, oh, I meant to tell you our buddy Ryan, who runs the, uh, online store on Amazon, he tell, told me recently that he added a bunch of stuff to the store. I haven't even looked yet. We just got back from Thanksgiving. I haven't even looked yet what they are, but apparently if you go into the Amazon store, just type in the hustle podcast merch or store or t-shirts or whatever, there's a whole bunch of new stuff on there. So if you want to support the show, that's probably the best way to do it. Okay. Anyway, let's get back to Johnny. They wanted to put that out to follow it up, and they did. And okay. there was some some uh, some response to that on rock radio, but okay. it wasn't alternative enough to be alternative. Mm-hmm. And the, probably the biggest problem was, you know, this formerly of yeah. syndrome that we were stuck in with my history with Foreigner, and that's the other thing about the whole thing that makes it really hard to start fresh mm. once you've got that on your resume. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then one of the guys was in kingdom come the guitar player. Uh, another guy, the drummer was from a band called Crocus. Oh, and sure. Even though, even though we were not, uh, the big power rock band, mm-hmm. it's hard to overcome those. Sure. Formerly of category. Yeah. So, yeah, well, it just didn't catch on. Nobody bought it. We did no. uh, one uh, high-budget video that was pretty cool, but mm. MTV didn't play it. And so <laughs> things just fizzled out, and I couldn't keep on for the next one. I had yeah. to 
stop at that point. They gave us enough money for me to hang on and keep the house and Atlantic kicked in some money as a development deal. And that's how I was able to pay the mortgage. Wow. Yeah. At a point I just had to say, guys, you know what? I'm just going to have to start working and do right on my family. I can't keep playing around with this. Um, Who did Royal Jelly tour with? Did you go out on tour and play shows with people? We did, but we we couldn't get on any any bigger tours. Mm-hmm. We did we did like a van and trailer tour mm-hmm. with uh, there was another band. God, I can't remember their name, but they were they were younger cats that had a deal, maybe with Island. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Island. They they kind of packaged us together, and we drove mm-hmm. around played <laughs> bars where they would have original bands yeah but uh it just wasn't enough to to justify carrying on from my standpoint we could have but i I didn't think i could justify it to my family well let me ask you um i want to get into kind of the post career here in a second but what let me ask you about songwriting you mentioned i mean you have a credit on most of those songs on unusual heat i believe lowdown and dirty was the lead-off single from that album and i think it did okay Mm -hmm. on certain formats but is there a song on there where you're like you know what i really like this song and i wish that it had you know found a bigger audience or whatever yeah um ready for the rain is probably the song Mm -hmm. that got me the gig early in the morning before the daylight I hear the sound of thunder coming through the night. I awake and I wonder where my life is going. Am I on a road leading nowhere? There's no way of knowing. Oh, Lord. Because I've seen the lightning. Standing on a mountain Looking into the sky I see the clouds come rolling in Water fills my eyes I don't know what's in the future No one can say Don't want to think about the past I wrote that song with Jeff Northrup and uh, it turned out pretty well. And they, they said that was probably going to be the next single. If we ever got Mm. to a third single, I think we released 
uh, Low Down and Dirty, and then we released I'll Fight For You. Ready for the Rain would have been the third if we had enough momentum to put a third one out there. Uh, A lot of people think that song had a lot of potential, but yeah, yeah, so that would probably be the one that means the most to me on that album. Okay. And who who did Foreigner go on tour with? When you, during those two years when you're out there, who are you playing with? Uh, We headlined most everywhere we went. We did some bigger shows with Toto and oh fun! I know it wasn't working out, but you had to have. There had to have been some moments when you were like, "This is all I've ever wanted." You know, I mean, maybe this is the <laughs> maybe this is different than I imagined it. But I'm playing in front of thousands of people, and that's been my dream all along. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, I remember a show we did at the Greek Theater where it was kind of like that, mm. and. Uh, are you familiar with that place? Uh, yeah. And we had we did a gig there, and it was full. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty it's a desert, right? And it mm-hmm. hadn't rained forever, <laughs> and so we were playing, and everything was just perfectly normal. And all of a sudden, uh, we we broke into that song, "Ready for the Rain," uh-huh. <laughs> and it. Fucking started raining. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a light rain that lasted maybe, you know, two minutes, and then it was done. It was like the weirdest thing that ever. Is great. That is great. I know. And even the L.A. Times picked up on it. I remember the review was like, "Well, 
Fans may not be listening to Foreigner anymore, but maybe the gods are because when they played this song, it started to rain. Oh, that's it was, great! That, that was that was that was that was fun. Yeah, that is awesome. Good, I enjoyed good. that moment. Okay, there, there were a few times like that. Yes, sir, no doubt. Good. Okay. Okay, let me ask you this. We, I think we've talked. I think that's pretty much you know everything there is to say about Foreigner. But I am curious about the. Um, the King Cobra and the Montrose experiences as well. I mean, you're mm-hmm. there's a <laughs> yeah, on a to a smaller degree. There's a situation where you are entering into uh, a you know a legacy band that's kind of fledgling at that time. People are debating mm-hmm. whether to keep yeah, these got things this going. <laughs> you do, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, but you're I'm the replacement guy. Yeah, but you're so good at you have such a voice and can write such great songs that obviously people are like, boy, let's hope this Johnny Edwards saves us, you know, in some ways. Yeah. But how yeah. did I mean? So your whole Montrose experience was two weeks. That's it. You came two in, sang long, songs, man. and you were done. Uh huh. Isn't was it, it odd that that album, li- you know, th- that music lives on forever, and your whole experience with this noteworthy band? lasted two short weeks of your entire life yeah yeah i know it i know it man yeah i don't i don't i don't know that it in a way that's good for me i would have liked to have taken that to to its mm-hmm. ultimate conclusion ronnie played it for ted templeman when we finished just to get some feedback from him and, and ted was like man i think it's good you just need to finish it mm. You know, so it does sound like a demo tape. It sounds like, well, you know, the amount of time that we spent on it. And mm-hmm. James and I were pretty green, and uh, it was low budget. And uh, it would have been nice to use that as a starting point and spend some real time, because I think there was an audience there still for Ronnie to try to recapture his rock mm-hmm. roots. He didn't have the same... He hadn't fallen into the same ballad band, mm-hmm. corporate rock trap that Foreigner had. Yeah. So he's always always had a loyal following of people that appreciated his first couple of albums. Yeah. I would have liked to have spent more time trying to recapture some of that, but mm-hmm. Ronnie was financing it himself, and he oh, didn't boy. have yeah. the money to spend on it. And yeah. So there we go. Did you stay in touch with him at all when he committed suicide? Were you close? Did you? Did it come as a shock? No. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It was just so sad. Yeah. I don't know what to say about it. He's a, he was he was an intense person, so there's no way you could mistake when you're around him that he had different sides to his personality. So. Sometimes once somebody does commit suicide, you start to see those things and you realize, oh, gosh, maybe that's why he was like that. That was a depression. I didn't realize he had that. But then it makes sense looking back. And I just, oh, it's just so sad to think about it. Um, So tell us about King Cobra. How did that happen? Well, in the Northrop band, we had a manager, his name was Steve Clausman, and uh, he, I got to know him through Ronnie. He was mm-hmm. mag- managing Ronnie, and 
he came around with Ronnie when we toured with Ronnie and that's how we got to know Steve. And then Steve managed a band called Tesla sure. and got them signed to Geffen records. Mm -hmm. And that's who started calling me mm -hmm. in 1985. He said, Johnny, you need to come up here. I got this guitar player, Jeff Northrup. And, you know, we can get Ronnie to work with us. You know, we can, we can do this and do that. I just signed Tesla to Geffen Records. And I know how to do it. And mm -hmm. We're going to have a record deal. It's going to be great. And we I got all these songs already. And the, Jeff is a good writer. They were sending me songs and recordings that he made on little four-track cassettes. And I thought, damn, this guy is good. Uh -huh. um, and it was sort towards the tail end of, of L.A. rock, but it was still viable. Mm -hmm. We should have had a deal. If we would have been maybe two years earlier, I'm sure we would have. Right. But we were just towards the tail end of that trend, and that's the style of music we were playing. And so once we started sending out demo tapes, and it started to look like, well, maybe this isn't going to be a slam dunk mm -hmm. after all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. We started exploring other things, and that was smart on, yeah. on Steve's part. He's like, well, I know some people that are good songwriters. He introduced us to Carmine and mm -hmm. and Carmine came up and worked with us and another band that Steve had called uh, 58 Fury that hmm. he also signed to Geffen Records. And we were like partners in crime there with 58 Fury. Mm -hmm. um, they did get a deal, we didn't. Mm -hmm. But Carmine was around and other songwriters were coming around because 58 Fury Band had a contract, but they were so young and green that they they still needed work on their songs and on their musicianship. So they were still in development, and, and Steve was bringing these cats up there to work with them and get them further along so they could actually get to the studio and record an album, which unfortunately never happened. <laughs> <laughs> they, they kept bringing in people. Andy Johns came in. Oh, wow. And that's how I met Jeff Clavin and Phil Brown. These are guys that I ended up working nice. with in L.A., writing yeah. songs. And, and uh, so Carmine was one of those people, and he came up and helped out a little bit, and he got to know Northrop, and he he liked what we did, and he was putting a band together. He, he wanted to put another King Cobra album out. Mm. And he's one of these cats, you know, that he, he's, he's got a million things going all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, he's doing drum clinics, and he's doing, uh, he's touring with Vanilla Fudge, a reunion yeah. tour, and he's, he's doing this, and he's doing that, and he's going to produce this other album. He's writing songs with so-and-so. And uh, he's sitting in with so and so, and and so one of the things he wanted to do was put together another King Cobra album. He thought there was a market for that, and so they had a singer named Mark Terrine, who you may know of. Mm -hmm. He played with the Bullet. He was a singer in the Bullet Boys. Yeah, I've had Mark and, on uh, here. I love the Bullet Boys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Great singer, mm -hmm. and also Mark Free was singing mm -hmm. on some of these tracks. So Carmine had done demos with a couple of different singers. Um, he had a guitarist, oh, I'm trying to remember his name, that was actually in King Cobra. That was one of the big blonde hair guys. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> nice guy, good guy, good guitar player. 
yeah. but more in that, you know, Eddie Van Halen style. So Carmine kind of hit a wall. It looked like Mark Turin was going to be the singer, and then he dropped out to be with the Bullet Boys, and they had yeah. a deal with uh, Warner Brothers. And so Carmine was like, God, I thought I was working at this thing. Oh, yeah. that's what I'm going to do. And so he said, well, look, there's this Northrop band up here. These guys all know what they're doing. I could probably just get them to come in and just kind of be King Cobra. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so that's what we did. Huh. And we had mixed, mixed feelings about it. Songs yeah. were already written. Carmine was going to produce it. He played the drums. And uh, Jeff played guitar, and I think uh, our bass player played some bass, and uh, some of the tracks may have just been recycled from the demos. I don't know. I sang the songs, and then uh, we did a video that did get played on Headbangers Ball. It didn't get into any kind of rotation Mm. or anything, but we got a little exposure on MTV. Which song was that? Take it off. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure what to sing. Carmine uh, asked if we want to go out and play as King Cobra, and he booked a few gigs. And Northrop went out and played as King Cobra hmm. with our just our full band. <laughs> and Carmine <laughs> was playing Cobra. drums, or no? No, no, so, he didn't go. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't do any gigs. <laughs> so he just bestows <laughs> yeah. on Northrop the name King Cobra. Have at it, please. Yeah. You go do your uh-huh. thing. No way. Yeah. <laughs> I think I can't remember how many gigs we played if it was more than one i just remember one in particular uh-huh. it's on casino up in up in nevada okay that we played it must have been more than one but i, I the only one that sticks That's out in my mind wild. it didn't That's last very, it didn't yeah. last very long okay it wasn't uh okay wasn't much to it but okay yeah well um so let's let's talk about blue funk your new outfit okay. but before we get there i want to you mentioned earlier having to sort of, you know, put Royal Jelly to bed, to bed and just be like, guys, I, I have to go back to work. What did you do? Yeah. when? The, well, I mean, you'd been a professional musician with various levels of success for so long, and I'm sure that's what you wanted out of life. What does a guy in your situation do in that moment? Do you open the van ads? Do you call the yellow pages? Do you call a friend? What do you do? Well... Uh, I did some of that, and it was fruitless. Okay. I didn't know how to how to 
even put together a resume that anybody would want to sure. want to read. But my wife was skilled in uh, clerical work. She uh, took a job in the neighborhood. There was a company there, like a security company, that did uh, alarm systems and camera systems and card reader systems. And she got a job there working for Ben, the Israeli guy. Mm. And uh, he he ran the business out of his house. And uh, she worked there for the two years that I was trying to do the... the, uh, royal jelly stuff so after that fizzled out she she went to her boss and she said you know you should hire my husband because he's a, he knows all this stuff backwards and forwards with electronics really? and wow. everything else you know I, i've always been a skilled craftsman i was always building the pa systems and the lighting systems mm. and and fixing the truck, you know, yeah. and all that stuff. Cool. And uh, so I, I can do a lot of things. Um, and so she got me hired on there, and uh, pretty soon she and I were basically running the business, mm. and we ended up as co-owners in the business. Then along came you know, my brother and sister. I have an older brother and an older sister, and they, they relocated to Germany years ago and um so then my parents were still here in louisville and there was no family left here mm. so i told ben i said you know what i, I probably need to go back to louisville because my parents are getting older now and yeah. there's nobody there and i wasn't playing music professionally anymore there was really no point in staying in los angeles with everything yeah. that goes along with that and i i uh I just felt like it was a little irresponsible. I was in a position to move. I knew mm-hmm. I could find a job easily. Oh, so um, you didn't move to Louisville and maintain ownership of the company. You left. Yeah, check this out. So we'd been working our way you know, through the company, and pretty soon we were running the thing, and he... He couldn't. He felt like he couldn't afford to pay us what we were worth. So he said, "Okay, every year that you stay, I'm going to give you this much more percentage of the business." Mm. And so I gave him a year's notice. I said, "Man, we're going to have to move, you know." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so let's try to find a way that we can replace ourselves here so that yeah. it doesn't hurt you, because we were great friends. And uh, he said, "Okay." The time came to leave. And he said, all right, Johnny, uh, write down on a piece of paper, because there was no contract or anything Mm -hmm. written. Mm -hmm. He said, write down on a piece of paper what you think your share of the company is. (laughs) And so I did. And he said, I'm going to write down a number. Mm -hmm. And then we'll turn the paper over and see where we are. (laughs) Oh, man. That's like Russian roulette. Yeah. Yeah. And believe it or not, it was almost the exact same number. Oh, nice. Good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so we moved away and he said, I can't afford to pay you right now, but I'll, I'll, I'll make good on it. Mm-hmm. You know? And he said, just take the cell phone with you because I'm going to need you to support, you know, the technicians and things, you know, every nook and cranny of this business. So I was like, okay, I'll keep answering the phone for mm-hmm. a year or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took him about two years, but he, he paid every penny of that money just on wow. a handshake. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, sure enough. And That's we moved amazing. back here. And I know. 
and uh, I got a job. You know, I I started looking. Uh-huh. First day I went looking, I found this company. They hired me on the spot, and I've been there ever since. What do you do? What do you do? Camera systems, card reader systems. You know, my job is more like sales engineering. Okay. Meet with potential clients, uh, figure out what their needs are. We work with a lot of bigger organizations. Like we sold the camera system to the city of Louisville. We've got Mm -hmm. a few municipalities where we deploy these big camera systems. Mm -hmm. UPS is one of our big accounts that we sell to nationwide. We deal with enterprise level security solutions for card okay. reader systems and camera systems. That's primarily what my division does. And I'm responsible okay. for a bunch of technicians and salespeople and yeah. lunatics. And I've got a lot of <laughs> friends here and yeah. they treat me treat me really good and I'm, that is I'm, fantastic. I'm yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing that for twenty years? Yeah, yeah. So we moved back here, um, and you know, I got my—I have two daughters, and got them through high school, and then through college. One Excellent. of them a school teacher. One of them yes. uh, got a degree in design and production for theatrical, and she's a automation engineer with a big production out in Las Vegas wow. now. And so they're just doing great and they're off and running. And so I started, you know, finding myself with more time. So I decided to put another band together and we got this little blue funk thing going. Yeah. A lot of fun with that. We play once or twice a month. Do you really just locally? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm so busy with work. You know, I work about 50 hours a week and there's so many people that depend on me there Mm -hmm. that I just really struggle to see what it would be like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm probably going to work till I'm 70. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I like to, you know, it's just enough for me to mm-hmm. be able to express myself musically. We write our own songs and we play some cool old, you know, cover songs and yeah. do stuff our own way. And there's not a big market around here for original bands. It's cover band mm-hmm. central yeah. in Louisville. So you get a little bit of that, but, yeah. We get away with it and Good. have some really fun times. We did. A, <laughs> I got roped into a a foreigner thing last month. What? We did this. There's there's a huge, uh, very popular cover band here called the Louisville Crashers, and they can play just about anything there is. Uh-huh. And I've known these guys for years. And they said, Johnny, you got to come sing some foreigner songs with us. We'll promote it really big. <laughs> We did this outdoor show last month, and I went and sang like five, four hundred songs with them, and it was huge, man. We had a few thousand people there. It was it was wonderful. Wow, you know, good for was, you, man. Yeah, great. yeah, it was good because I've never played in Louisville with Foreigner. We played up in Cincinnati. <laughs> That's true. Made it through here. <laughs> That's yeah. great. I wanted to mention for my listeners uh, last year, 2018. Blue Funk put out a self-titled album. I believe it's your only one that's that people could listen yeah. to or buy or stream or whatever, right?
you know, saying rock music in front of thousands of people, I would be daydreaming about that a lot. So when you do that, <laughs> what is the I, memory? That, I mean, you name dropped Billy Joel earlier. What's the thing where you're like, you guys wouldn't believe this, but I X, you know, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, hung out with, uh, I went to a party one time with, um, it was Ian Pace's birthday party. And at that party was, uh, George Harrison. Uh, I, I got to meet him and Paul McCartney. And so (laughs) I remember George Harrison was at this party and, uh, he stepped out on the balcony or this patio, Mm -hmm. one of these great big, like English castle kind of houses. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know he was out there. I went out there to get some air. And then all of a sudden, I'm standing out there on this patio with George Harrison, right? No way. <laughs> and guess what I said? What? Absolutely nothing. Oh, man. I I one thing to say. <laughs> I completely froze up. I didn't know how to how to say a word to this guy. He was out there smoking a cigarette. I'm, yeah. Back in my mind, I'm thinking, you should probably not be doing that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you were right. Yeah. But if I had a lick of sense, I would have said something to him and introduced myself. But wow. of course he could have done the same thing, but he didn't. True. Uh, <laughs> wow. Paul was a lot easier to talk to. He went out of his way to be nice to us. But, oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a good one. Wow, that's so funny. And that would have been around the time of like traveling Wilburys, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. A year after that, probably okay. it was. Okay. Yeah, around ninety ninety one. That's crazy. Traveling Wilburys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. I love that okay. record. Mm-hmm. I do too. The second one sort of gets lost in the shuffle, but that first record is so good. Yeah. Yeah, it is, uh, man. Okay. Well, uh, Johnny, this was a this was a huge honor. Thank you for talking with me. I have been so You're curious welcome. about you for a long time, and I've actually gotten some requests for you as a guest over the over okay. the years. And so I am right. so glad we did this. Thank you for talking with me. There have it, Johnny Edwards. Isn't that fanas- fascinating? I am so glad that we got to tell his story on here and share it with all of you. I hope you appreciated that. So many interesting things, so many interesting stories and threads among major rock and roll bands of the 70s and 80s and how they how they tried to keep it alive, how they tried to, you know, stay above water. And, uh, and they used Johnny a lot of the time to do that. And unfortunately, it just didn't work out often enough. I wanted to close it out with a song off of the Blue Funk album. This is Tell Me Everything. I worry, I don't think I came off as complimentary enough in, in the art in the interview to that album. I, I don't always love blues-based rock and roll. I mean, if it's too much blues-based, but this album is solid. And so I, uh, I, I don't think I said that enough in the interview, but it is. So check it out on Spotify or whatever you want to do. But uh, if you love that blues-based rock and roll, check out Blue Funk. And as I said, the, t- the spelling is weird. But the link is right here in the description of the show. Now, next week, we are going back to the 90s. We've mentioned recently when we had Chris from the President's United States of America, bands that were sort of one album wonder bands of the 90s. We got another one of those. 
These guys had a few hits in the mid-90s, and then it sort of ended. But they have never gone away. In fact, they still put it, they put out a new album this year. So that's who we're going to be hearing from next week. Um, there also may be a, a promo mode episode coming out either this week or next week. Uh, just depends on our schedules and everything like that. There's a ton, ton going on right now. I'm frankly a little overwhelmed, but it's going to be fun. All right. And a huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan, the man, Makevich, for helping me do all this. Thank you, buddy, for all that you do. You guys know by now you can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us an email, thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, at thehustlepod. All right? We will talk to you later. Thanks, folks.